Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to Crypt Tea. This episode is going to be a little bit different. Ryan won't be here, so we wanted to save the Angola Pigman episode. We ask that you share with all of your friends on social media and send case suggestions to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You know the rest. Tonight, you'll get some scary short stories, the story of the Dybbuk Box, Haunted Shawshank Prison, Ong's Hat, and the Hanging Cage of Quebec. Enjoy the show. The Boy with No Eyes One night when I was ten, I was woken up by my bedroom door opening, followed by someone sitting on my bed. I felt my leg grazed and the bed sink under a person's weight. It's just mom, I thought, and I opened my eyes. It was not mom. I found an eyeless boy. He had black, empty sockets, about my age, sitting at the foot of my bed. He extended his hand, and in it was a little box. I was startled, but reached out. He pulled back. I reached again and said, give it. Then I blinked, and when I reopened my eyes, he was gone. But I could still see the imprint where he'd sat on my bed. Fast forward five years. My girlfriend came over to do homework. After she finished, she took a nap while she waited for her parents. When they arrived, I tried waking her up. She opened her eyes suddenly, looking up at a corner where the wall met the ceiling. She pointed there and went back to sleep. I shook her again. She came to full consciousness and I explained what she'd done. She looked haunted. Up on the wall, I saw a little boy with no eyes. He was there in a Spider-Man pose staring at me. I freaked out and told her my story about the same kid. Fast forward another five years. I was with the same girlfriend and we had a two-year-old. We were living in my parents' house in my old room. My daughter started waking up at the same time every night and she'd talk. After a while, I noticed she had almost the same conversation every night. I playfully asked her once whom she was talking to. She said, it's a little boy. He's nice. He's lost and looking for his mommy. My daughter's nightly conversations continued until we got our own place later that year. My basement had a red rug, and when you came down the stairs, there would be a hallway on your left. Then to your right was a big space. We had a TV set up by the window. The window was rectangular in shape. The TV's back is faced towards the wall and faced outward towards our couch. One day I was playing games down there. We had a PS2 and I was playing Dynasty Warriors. I had all the lights off because it was in the summer in the afternoon so the sunlight was bright enough to light up my basement. Thirty minutes had passed when one of my older brother's friends walked past the basement door and closed it. By now I'm practically downstairs in my basement alone in the dark. As time went by, I began to feel uncomfortable as if something was there with me. 
As a young kid, I ignored it, but then I began to get sweaty, and I began to hear a strange noise. I know it's going to sound weird, but it sounded like moaning, as if a girl was getting pleasured. I stopped what I was doing and looked around. Then I got up and leaned to the side to look down the hallway. My hallway led to the laundry room, storage room, and dishes room. When I looked down there, all I saw was darkness. I shrugged it off, thinking it was nothing. Then, soon enough, it sounded a little closer this time, and a little louder. I just kept trying to ignore it, but my dumb self thought, let me go check, just to satisfy my curiosity. Then it would just suddenly stop. After it happened three times, it sounded as if it was in the hallway. This time, I was scared shitless. I just tried to calm down, but then it came one more time. This time, it sounded as if it was by the couch near me. I built up enough courage to get up and run upstairs. I talked to myself in my head, saying, All right, I'll throw the controller down and run upstairs in three, two, one. I threw the controller and ran up the stairs. When I busted through the door, my brother's older friend looked at me with a what-the-fuck look. I told him. So then he went downstairs and turned on all the lights. Being a big guy, he said, Whoever's messing with him, leave now. Then it was just dead silence. It never happened again. Even till this day, I hate being in my basement. Even if we completely took all the negative energy out of my house... I still feel uncomfortable. It was good to see an old friend. When I was 37, I went to my high school reunion. I flew into the nearest airport and rented a car. The distance was about 35 miles through a very rural and almost abandoned part of the country. About three miles outside of town, I see someone on the side of the road flagging me down. It turned out that it was one of the guys I had attended school with. Jim gets in the car and we start talking. I had not seen him in 20 years, but he still looked the same, maybe a little older. When we get to town and I ask him if he wants to come to the VFW and have a drink, he says, No, just take me home. Jim's parents had lived only a few blocks from my grandmother's house and I turned in that direction but he said to take him to the outskirts of town. There was a mobile home park there and I figured that is where he lived. When we reached the end of the turnoff, he said, Just drop me here. It was good to see you again. And he walks off into the night. I go to the VFW, met some of my old classmates, and we started to talk. As we're talking about who's coming to the reunion, I mentioned that I had just picked up Jim three miles east of town and had dropped him off. Everyone gets quiet. Even the guy singing karaoke stops and lays down the mic. My cousin goes white as a new t-shirt. Barb, Jim died on that curve eight years ago, rolled his car. We were all at his funeral. I started to feel really dizzy and I went out to the car to take some deep breaths. There on the seat is the local newspaper, printed eight years previous, containing Jim's obituary. 
I still have the paper. The Dybbuk Box All of the events that I am about to set forth in this listing are accurate and may be verified by the winning bidder with the copies of hospital records and sworn affidavits that I am including as part of the sale of this cabinet. During September of 2001, I attended an estate sale in Portland, Oregon. The items liquidated at this sale were from the estate of a woman who had passed away at the age of 103. A granddaughter of the woman told me that her grandmother had been born in Poland where she grew up, married, raised a family, and lived until she was sent to a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. She was the only member of her family who survived the camp. Her parents, brothers, a sister, husband, and two sons and a daughter were all killed. She survived the camp by escaping with some other prisoners and somehow making her way to Spain where she lived until the end of the war. I was told that she acquired the small wine cabinet listed here in Spain and it was one of only three items that she brought with her when she immigrated to the U.S. The other two items were a steamer trunk and a sewing box. I purchased the wine cabinet along with the sewing box and some other furniture at the estate sale. After the sale, I was approached by the woman's granddaughter who said, I see, you got the Dybbuk box. She was referring to the wine cabinet. I asked her what a Dybbuk box was and she told me that when she was growing up, her grandmother always kept the wine cabinet in her sewing room. It was always shut and set in a place that was out of reach. The grandmother always called it the Dybbuk box. When the girl asked her grandmother what was inside, her grandmother spit three times through her fingers and said, a Dybbuk and Kesselum. The grandmother went on to tell the girl that the wine cabinet was never, ever to be opened. The granddaughter told me that her grandmother had asked that the box be buried with her. However, as such a request was contrary to the rules of an Orthodox Jewish burial, the grandmother's request had not been honored. I asked the granddaughter what a Dybbuk and Kesselum were, but she didn't know. I asked if she would like to open it with me. She did not want to open it, as her grandmother had been very emphatic and serious when she instructed her not to do so, and regardless of the reason, she wanted to honor her grandmother's request. I finally ended up offering to let her keep what seemed to me to be a sentimental keepsake. At that point, she was very insistent and said, no, no, you bought it. I explained that I didn't want my money back and that it would make me feel better to do what I thought was an act of kindness. She then became somewhat upset. Looking back now, the way she became upset was just plain odd. She raised her voice to me and said, you bought it. You made a deal. When I tried to speak, she yelled, we don't want it. She began to cry, asked me to leave, and quickly walked away. I wrote the whole episode off to the stress and grief she must have been experiencing. I took my purchases and politely left. At the time when I bought the cabinet, I owned a small furniture refinishing business. I took the cabinet to my store and put it in my basement workshop where I intended to refinish it and give it as a gift to my mother. I didn't think anything more about it. I opened up my shop for the day and went to run some errands, leaving the young woman who did sales for me in charge. After about a half hour, I got a call on my cell phone. The call was from my salesperson. 
She was absolutely hysterical and screaming that someone was in my workshop breaking glass and swearing. Furthermore, the intruder had locked the iron security gates in the emergency exit and she couldn't get out. As I told her to call police, my cell phone battery went dead. I hit speeds of 100 miles per hour, getting back to the shop. When I arrived, I found the gates locked. I went inside and found my employee on the floor in a corner of my office, sobbing hysterically. I ran to the basement and went downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs, I was hit by an overpowering, unmistakable odor of cat urine. There had never been any animals kept or found in my shop. The lights didn't work. As I investigated, I found that the reason the lights didn't work also explained the sounds of the glass breaking. All of the light bulbs in the basement were broken. All nine incandescent bulbs had been broken in their sockets, and ten four-foot fluorescent tubes were lying, shattered on the floor. I didn't find an intruder, however. I should also add that there was only one entrance to the basement. It would have been impossible for anyone to leave without meeting me head-on. I went back up to speak with my salesperson, but she had left. She never returned to work. She had been with me for two years. She refuses to discuss the incident to this day. I never thought of relating the events of that day to anything having to do with the cabinet. Then things got worse. As I already indicated, I had decided to give the cabinet to my mother as a birthday gift. About two weeks after I made the purchase, I decided to get started refinishing it. I was surprised to find that the cabinet has a unique little mechanism. When you open one of the doors, the mechanism causes the opposite door and a little drawer below to open at the same time. It was very well made. Inside the cabinet, I found the following items. One 1928 U.S. wheat penny, one 1925 U.S. wheat penny, one small lock of blonde hair bound with string, one small lock of black hair bound with a string as well, one small granite statue engraved and gilded with Hebrew letters. I have been told that the letters spell out the word Shalom. One dried rosebud, one golden wine cup, and one very strange black cast iron candlestick holder with octopus legs. I saved all of the items in a box intending to return them to the estate. The family has refused the items, so they will be included in this sale of the cabinet. After opening the cabinet, I decided not to refinish it. I cleaned it and rubbed in some lemon oil. It was at this time that I noticed that there was an inscription in Hebrew carved into the back of the cabinet. I have no idea what it says or if it is significant. On my mother's birthday, October 28, 2001, my mother called to tell me that she was going out of town with my sister for three days, and we postponed celebrating her birthday together until she returned. On October 31, 2001, my mother came to my shop. We were going to have lunch together, but before we were going to leave, I gave her the wine cabinet. She seemed to like it. While she examined it, I went to make a phone call. I hadn't been out of sight for more than five minutes when one of my employees came running into my office saying that something was wrong with my mom. When I went back to see what the matter was, I found my mom sitting in a chair beside the cabinet. Her face had no expression, but tears were streaming down her cheeks. No matter how I tried to get her to respond, she would not. She could not. Turns out that my mother had suffered a stroke. 
She was taken to the hospital by ambulance. She ended up suffering partial paralysis and losing her ability to speak and form words. She has since regained the ability to speak. She could understand things being said to her and could respond by pointing to letters of the alphabet to spell out words she wanted to say. When I asked her the following day how she was doing, she teared up and spelled out the words, no gift. I assured her that I had given her a gift for her birthday, thinking that she didn't remember, but she became even more upset and spelled out the words, hate gift. I laughed and told her not to worry. I told her I was sorry she didn't like the cabinet and that I would get her anything she wanted if she would promise to get well soon. Still, I didn't associate anything that had happened with the cabinet itself or anything paranormal. Frankly, I don't think I ever even used the term paranormal until this last month. I'll try to make this short now. I gave the cabinet to my sister. She kept it for a week, then gave it back. She complained that she couldn't get the doors to stay closed and that they kept coming open. There are no springs in the door mechanism, and I have never found that the doors come open. I gave it to my brother and his wife who kept it for three days and then gave it back. My brother said it smelled like jasmine flowers while his wife insisted that it put out an odor of cat urine. I gave it to my girlfriend who asked me to sell it for her after only two days. I sold it the same day to a nice middle-aged couple. Three days later, when I came to open up the shop for the day, I found the cabinet sitting at the front doors with a note that read, This has a bad darkness. I had no idea what that meant. Anyway, I ended up taking it home. Then, things got even worse. Since the day I brought it home, I began having a strange recurring nightmare. Every time I have this horrible dream, it goes something like this. I find myself walking with a friend, usually someone I know well and trust at some point in the dream. I find myself looking into the eyes of the person that I am with. It is then that I realize that there is something different, something evil, looking back at me. At that point in my dream, the person I'm with changes into what can only be described as the most gruesome, demonic-looking hag that I have ever seen. This hag proceeds then to beat the living tar out of me. I've awakened numerous times to find bruises and marks on myself where I had been hit by the old woman during the previous night. Still, I never related the nightmares to the cabinet, nor do I think that I ever would have. About a month ago, however, my sister and my brother and his wife came over to my house and spent the night. The following morning during breakfast, my sister complained that she had had a horrible nightmare. She said that she recalled having had it a couple of times before and went on to describe my nightmare exactly to the last detail. My brother and his wife froze as they listened and then chimed in that they had both had the same exact dreams during the night as well. The hair was standing up on the back of my neck and still is. As we talked, it became clear that the common denominator was that each of us had the nightmare during the times that the cabinet was in our respective homes. I called my girlfriend and asked if she could recall having any nightmares recently. She described the same nightmare, same hag, everything. When I asked her if she remembered the date when she had the nightmare, she said she did not. Then I asked if it happened to be the night before she gave me the cabinet back to sell for her. She said, yeah, hey, how did you know that? Now then, since my family discussion, it seems like all hell is breaking loose. 
For a week afterward, I started seeing what I can only describe as shadow things in my peripheral vision. In fact, numerous visitors to my house have claimed that they have seen these shadow things. I put the cabinet in an outside storage unit and was awakened when the smoke alarm in the unit went off in the middle of the night. When I went to see what was burning, I opened the door and didn't see any smoke. However, I did get hit with the smell of cat urine. When I went back inside, the smell was there in my house. I do not own a cat and never have. I went back outside and grabbed the cabinet. I brought it back inside and tried to research it on the internet. While I was surfing the net, I fell asleep and once again had the same freaking nightmare. I woke up at around 4.30 a.m. when it felt and smelled like someone was breathing on my neck to find that my house now smelled like jasmine flowers and just in time to see a huge shadow thing go loping down the hall away from me. I would destroy this thing in a second except I really don't have any understanding of what I may or may not be dealing with. I'm afraid that if I destroy the cabinet, whatever it is that seems to have come with the cabinet may just stay here with me. I've been told that there are people who shop on eBay that understand these kinds of things and specifically look for these kinds of items. If you are one of these people, please Please buy this cabinet and do whatever you do with a thing like this. Help me. Ong's Hat Ong's Hat is one of the earliest internet-based secret history conspiracy theories. It was created as a piece of collaborative fiction by four core individuals dating back to the 1980s, although the membership propagating the tale changed over time. Ong's Hat is often cited as the first ARG on many lists of alternate reality games. The characters were largely based in the ghost town of Ong's Hat, New Jersey, hence the name of the project. The threads of the story can be traced back as far as the 1980s on bulletin board systems, old Xerox mail art networks, and early zines. The aim was to create a fictional storyline and embed it in various media cultures to establish backstory. It may have started as an in-joke or the first alternate reality game, a work of transmedia storytelling, or as a mimetic experiment to see how far the meme could spread, or a combination of all of these. The story eventually used print, radio, television, and digital mediums in its dissemination. The initial ground rules acknowledged the possibility that such an experiment could end up going down darker paths, and they specifically ruled out Ong's hat being used for cult-like activities. 
The Ong's Hat narrative is told in the form of conspiracy theories surrounding a group of renegade Princeton professors who had conducted quantum physics and chaos theory experiments to discover a new theory for dimensional travel using a device called the egg, and were camped out in a parallel world. Their story is introduced through two documents, Incunabula, a catalog of rare books, manuscripts, and curiosa, conspiracy theory, frontier science, and alternative worlds, and Ong's Hat, Gateway to the Dimensions. The story is said to begin in 1978 when a man named Wally Ford bought over 200 acres of forested land and set up an ashram. This ashram was built for seekers of spirituality, politics, tantra, and psychopharmacology. The ashram was a place for Princeton physicists among other accredited scientists, to perform experiments involving interdimensional travel. It was rumored that they were trying to train the human mind to manipulate quantum physics and reality itself. A device called the egg was developed in the late 1980s by these scientists and physicists. This device was created as a variation of a sensory deprivation chamber, and it was used to help them determine when a wave becomes a particle. However, during a test one day, something unexpected happened. It disappeared. The young man who was inside the egg when it disappeared explained that in the seven minutes the egg was gone, he had traveled to another alternate dimension of the Earth. This other Earth was exactly the same as our Earth. However, it did not contain human life. Throughout the years, they continued their experiments. However, when military efforts threatened the research being done by these physicists and scientists, they had to move their site somewhere else. Piece by piece, they moved their ashram to the other earth. They left behind only the house where the gateway between worlds is held. The only time the people who live in the ashram return is when they need to restock supplies. Aside from being the location for the Shawshank Redemption, the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio boasts an unpleasant history. It was originally built as an intermediate penitentiary in 1896 for boys too old for juvenile detention but who hadn't committed crimes warranting prison. After immediate success came decades of budget cuts. Eventually, it was converted into a maximum security prison. By the 1980s, conditions had become deplorable, and according to Teresa Argy, author and paranormal investigator known as The Haunted Housewife, it was a horrible place. It had this incredible bane of violence that ran through it almost from the beginning. According to Argy, several suicides, murders, and riots took place there, and eventually it was shuttered in 1990. You can imagine why a place like that would be haunted. There's something negative there. You can just feel it in your bones. And indeed, there are plenty of ghost stories from the old prison. We ran into female spirits there, which I thought was incredibly interesting, she said. One is the wife of a former warden who was shot with a gun sitting atop a box that she was pulling down from a closet shelf. According to Argy, they've captured recordings of a woman crying, the warden most likely. They've even smelled rose perfume in the bedroom. 
Another spirit that's said to haunt the reformatory is a woman who sits in the prison chapel and cries. When you approach this woman sitting in the pew, she disappears. Other people have seen her walking. Argy doesn't think she's part of the prison, though. Instead, she believes the spirit might be associated with one of the objects donated to the prison while it was being restored as a historical monument. Then there's the malevolent presence that she detected in one of the prison solitary confinement cells along with her paranormal associate, Kathy Weber, and a psychic medium. As Argy began to ask questions, the medium told her that she needed to leave because the spirit in the cell was angry and didn't want her there. He would literally be cussing at me, she recalled. Still, they came back again and again to gather new recordings and photos that helped them determine his true identity, the former prisoner. While their sessions with the angry ghost were unnerving, it wasn't until he followed Argy's partner home that they were truly terrified. One day she saw him through a reflection of her window. She saw this thing in black, this shadow figure, and she knew it was him. According to Argy, the spirit continued to follow her partner until she enlisted the help of an expert to rid her of the ghost. Luckily, we haven't seen him since then. The Ghost of La Parva Ski Resort Throughout Latin America, you'll hear variations of the story of La Llorona, or the Wailing Woman. Sometimes she's lost her husband, sometimes she's lost her children, sometimes it's both. But in La Parva, a ski spot in the Chilean Andes, the Wailing Woman is named Lola, and everyone in the area swears they knew her before she died. A local restaurant owner said he dated her. The story starts on a nice day in peak ski season. Lola and her young son planned to spend the day on the slopes. As can happen in the Andes, a thick fog rose up from the valley, which often precedes the arrival of a storm. The clouds enveloped the two as they were making their way down from the top of the mountain and they lost contact with one another. Desperate to find her son, Lola began screaming his name as she ran through the thick fog. Julio! Julio! Unable to see clearly though, she stumbled down a steep slope and began sliding toward a rocky corridor. By chance, a local lift operator who was returning to his cabin came across her body. He was afraid she was dead, but on closer inspection, he found she was still alive, just barely. Her body was covered in lacerations from sharp rocks, and the only word she said in the faintest whisper was her son's name, Julio. The lift operator worked to carefully pull her body to his cabin, which was just up the hill. He bandaged her cuts as best he could and then ran to fetch the doctor. Together, the doctor and lift operator made their way back to his hut, the fog hanging thickly in the air. When they arrived though, the bed was empty. Just the bloody sheets remained. Neither the woman nor her son were ever found. But locals report hearing her wail for her child whenever they're near that lift operator's cabin. Julio! Julio! Julio!
Marie Josephette Corvier, better known as La Corvier, is a well-known figure in Quebecois folklore. She lived in New France and was sentenced to death by a British court-martial for the murder of her second husband and was hanged for it with her body hanged in chains. Her story has become a legend in Quebec and she is the subject of many books and plays. She was born in 1733 and baptized in the rural parish of St. Vallier in New France. She was the only surviving offspring of Joseph Corvier, a farmer, and Marie-Francois Bolduch. Her ten brothers and sisters all died in childhood. Corvier married at the age of 16 to 23-year-old Charles Bouchard, who was also a farmer. Three children were born in this marriage. Two daughters, Marie-Francois and Marie-Angelique, followed by a son, Charles. Rumors that started after the death of her second husband say that she murdered him, but there is no concrete record of his death. Charles Bouchard was buried on April 27, 1760, and then she remarried 15 months later to another farmer, Louis-Étienne Dodier. On the morning of January 27, 1763, he was found dead in his barn with multiple head wounds. Despite an official recording of the cause of death being from kicks of horses' hooves and a speedy burial, rumors and gossip of murder spread rapidly through the neighborhood. Dodier was on bad terms with his father-in-law and with his wife. At the time, New France had been conquered by the British in 1760 as part of the Seven Years' War and was under the administration of the British Army. On hearing the rumors, the local British military, charged with keeping order, set up an inquiry into Dodier's death. The inquiry opened in Quebec City in 1763, charging Joseph Corvier and his daughter, Marie-Josephette, before a military tribunal made up of 12 English officers. Many people in the community had testified, including Joseph's niece and Marie-Josephette's cousin, a young woman approximately the same age as Marie-Josephette, named Isabella Sylvain. The case ended on April 9th, with Joseph Corvier being sentenced to death for culpable homicide of his son-in-law. Marie-Josephette was found to be an accomplice to murder and sentenced to 60 lashes and branded with the letter M on her hand. One of Joseph Corvier's nieces, Isabelle Sylvain, who he employed as a servant, had testified but changed her story several times during the hearing. She was found guilty of perjury and given 30 lashes and branded with the letter P. Condemned to hang, Joseph Corvier then told his confessor that he was no more than an accomplice to his daughter after she had killed Dodier. At a second trial, on April 15th, Marie-Josephette testified to having killed her husband with two blows of a hatchet during his sleep because of his ill treatment of her. The tribunal found her guilty and sentenced her to hang, her body after to be hanged in chains, put up for public display on a gibbet, which is kind of a gallows, a hanging cage, if you will. The place of execution was Quebec, near the Plains of Abraham, on or about April 18, 1763. Her body was then taken as directed by the sentence to be put in chains at Point Levy, at the crossroads of Lausanne and Bienville. 
The body and its iron gibbet was exposed for public view until May 25th at the earliest, but it may have stayed out there longer. Following the requests of those living nearby, an order from the military commander of the District of Quebec, James Murray, addressed to the captain of the militia of Point Levy, permitted its being taken down and buried. In 1851, the cage was dug up from the cemetery of the Church of St. Joseph de la Point Levy when a pit was dug. Soon after, the cage was stolen from the church cellar and acquired by the American Impresario, P.T. Barnum, and put on display as a macabre object. After that, it was put on display at the Boston Museum. The museum slip indicated its provenance with two words, from Quebec. Through the efforts of the Society of History, the cage was acquired from the Boston Museum and is now part of permanent display in Quebec City. The post-mortem exhibition of Corbier's remains at a busy crossroads. The rumor that her father would be convicted of murdering Dodier at his daughter's instigation and the gossip which grew up around the circumstances of the death of her first husband all stirred up the popular imagination. They became legends and still told today in the oral tradition, increasing the number of murdered husbands to as many as seven and likening Le Corbier to a witch. The 1851 discovery of the iron cage buried in the cemetery of St. Joseph Parish served to reawaken the legends and the fantastic stories which were amplified and used by 19th century writers. The first in 1863 has a supernatural Corvier hanging in the Point Levy cage and terrorized a passerby by conducting a witch's Sabbath in Willow of the Wisp. James McPherson Lemoyne and William Kirby, following in his footsteps, made her a professional poisoner, a direct descendant of La Voisin, famous for her purported role in the affair of poisons. Writers and historians have tried to give Corvier's history, but without completely separating the facts from the fantasies added in legends and novels. The figure of Corvier still inspires novels, songs, and plays, and is the subject of arguments concerning guilt. Oral tradition also perpetuated and has not stopped and remains alive as is evidenced by the numerous stories collected in the lands of many regions of Quebec. That's all we've got for you tonight. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. 